Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, right here on your community radio station. We are WFMPLP Louisville broadcasting at 106.5 FM from here in the heart of downtown Louisville and the historic Hayburn building and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. If you're not there yet listening to our live stream, I want you to go there and become a part of our community radio station. We built this for you and it's by you. We want you to get involved in so many different ways, uh, whether it's as a listener sponsor, you could sponsor this entire day's broadcast for just 20 bucks. What a steal for this great community treasure. Or as a volunteer behind the microphones or behind the scenes. Either way, we'd love to get you involved in the station and have you become a part of this media that matters here in downtown Louisville. Well, what we do on Sustainability Now each week is we gather folks from around the community and sometimes from around the nation to talk about the ways they're struggling and succeeding to make sustainability a reality, to really balance social, economic, and environmental concerns. Uh, occasionally, to, uh, I get to have a national author in this virtual studio with me, and I'm delighted to have one with me today. His name is Sammy Grover. He's a North Carolina-based author, uh, and we are going to talk about his brand new book, We're All Climate Hypocrites Now, How Embracing Our Limitations Can Unlock the power of a movement just released this week. I'm so excited to have him. Sammy, welcome to Forward Radio. Thank you, Justin. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited too. <laughs> so your book really just came out on September 21st. Is that right? Uh, officially, yes. I got a few advanced copies a week or two before that, but it, it's it's my first book, so I'm oh very excited. And, you know, it's nice to have it in print. Congratulations. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But you, this is not your first time writing. You've written over 2,000 articles covering everything from electric bike ownership to peeing on your compost. I love it. <laughs> we might have time to dive into those things today. And you have worked on environmentally and socially conscious branding projects for clients like Burt's Bees and the Dogwood Alliance. And you've been uh, marginally successful in reducing your own environmental impact. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Like real people struggling with this, right? I think we're all suffering from some level of like climate anxiety, right? Uh, and and it motivates us. We, we think, well, there's got to be a role for me in solving this, but the world doesn't make it easy for us, does it? No, it doesn't. And that's kind of where the book comes from, right? Is that I think probably your listeners are, are fairly uh, well versed in, in this topic. So I'm sure they've been following that there's this constant debate between this on the one hand, kind of 100 companies are responsible for 70% of carbon emissions. And on the other hand, we must all become vegans and eat out of a dumpster. And I think there's sort of a, I think there's a, there's a middle ground where we can accept that we do have agency, we do have some responsibility to make, make a change. But we also need to focus our efforts because it's actually really damn hard to make a change within a system that kind of rewards the opposite. And that's where I get frustrated. A lot of the hardcore green lifestyle stuff is focused on on how easy it is and how we should all be doing everything. And uh. it, none of us are going to do everything. So we are better off focusing our efforts where we specifically have the most leverage and the most power to create system-wide change. That's so true. And yeah, you're you're right. There's something fundamentally frustrating about this whole concept of sustainability in that we're never going to get there. 
it's always a moving target, right? So even the greenest among us, right, or the most sustainability-oriented people uh, are constantly going to have to adapt and learn. And I, I really love uh, how your book talks about that process of learning and discovery and trying things out and, and being open to failure. I mean, that's just a fundamentally part of this, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I have no choice but be open to failure. Or I learned that long ago. Um, yes. So, so the, one of the examples I use in the book is uh, about 15, 16, probably 17 years ago now, I vowed never to fly again. I was just, I couldn't right. do it. There was too much climate change going on. Like, you know, the, my, my personal carbon footprint was way too big. So I quit my job which was fairly flight intensive. I was working in <laughs> academic publishing and visiting a lot of conferences. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I had one more flight to take. And on that last flight or on the last trip, uh, so second to last flight, I promptly fell in love with someone on the other side of the Atlantic. And <laughs> kind of, I've been flying ever since. Um, and I think everyone, wherever they are on the spectrum of that sort of individual green living, right? Like there are some people who are living totally off grid, solar power, vegan, dumpster diving whatever and there are some of us who are sort of not quite there yet right but but very very few are going to be at a place where they can say their carbon footprint is you know at zero right um, right, right right and also even if it is it doesn't make all that much difference if the world <laughs> carries on as normal um so what i try and frame it as is, is our goal is not to get our own personal carbon footprint to zero the only carbon footprint that matters is that of society as a whole and what we should be measuring our success on is, is how good are we doing at moving all of us along, right? And there is an argument to be made that you go too far, too far ahead, people can't follow you, right? Right, um, right. And, and it's interesting. But, but then the other argument is I know heroes who are really going really far down that personal uh, carbon footprint rabbit hole. Um, and they're doing a really good job. And they are inspiring folks like me who aren't quite there. So, so I, I, I would like to think of us as an ecosystem. I would like to think of us all is having a role to play. Um, and there's no right way to do it. Each of us has a different opportunity to make that difference. And for some, it will be that kind of like, you know, go build a straw bale house and, you know, sort of live off the grid and really go hardcore in that direction. And for others, it might actually be flying around the world to, to influence policymakers. I, I'm not I'm in no position to judge. <laughs> yes. No, I love this conversation um, because um, we're all on some different point in the journey, right? And and to expect everybody to be fully sustainable overnight is just unrealistic. And and, and so we get into this issue of, of shame, right? And, and pointing fingers and, and questioning people's commitment because they there's some level of imperfection in their personal lives around this. And that's a, that's a dangerous space to be in, in terms of sort of disempowering people or dividing the movement. Um, and, and your, I love your book because it's really about recognizing this and, and, and trying to find a way forward and coming together, even in that space. Right. Yeah, 100%. And it, it's, but it's also not about letting go of shame, right? Like shame yeah, and shaming, yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the chapters actually deals with this, is that shame and shaming are really useful tools. Really they useful. become this dirty word, right? <laughs> right, right, uh, right. They're really useful tools, but they, they only work. Uh, they come, uh, there's a, um, an author called Jennifer Jackway, who I, I, I speak to, who wrote a whole, whole book on this topic. It's a mm. fantastic book called Is Shame Necessary? Mm. Um, and it, she talks about uh, shame as being a little like antibiotics. 
right? If you if you use them too often and too broadly, they lose their power and their potency. Uh, so my argument is is that we need to think about shame and shaming and fear and hope and optimism and all of these different tools, and we need to use them where they're most appropriate. We need to be judicious about it. And and really, the trick I think is playing it through, right? As you mm. as you play it through in your head, it's not sort of just this question of, well, should somebody feel bad because they created pollution? It's it's more a question of should I make them feel bad because making them feel bad will actually deliver results, right? Mm. So if you can shame me into not flying. And me not flying will actually have a significant impact on societal level emissions. I actually have no problem with that. I think you should go for it. But I think you should you should think about is that the best use of that specific tool, right? Um, and and the sorry, I get really nerdy on this. So I'm going to carry on oh, a little further down the rabbit hole. But but shame um, shame works on the on the edge of social norms, yeah. right? So if yeah, everybody yeah. around you is doing the same thing it's very, very hard to shame someone for driving within North America, right? Like within North America, even buying an SUV, right? Like it's sort of, it's hard to shame someone for buying an SUV or driving a truck because that's the social norm, right? So you have to figure out where, where is that sort of sweet spot where the shame might move the needle. So on the, on the flying issue, for example, what I say is that shame and shaming may work best on private jets, for example, or frequent flyers or, or, business travel right or or where are those spots that will then create knock-on effects that that hit the profits of the airline industry and start creating alternatives and make it easier for others not to fly Hmm. Um, so it's always playing it through and the answer will be different for different people depending on which piece of the puzzle you're working on i think some people probably you know some people may be working on frequent flies and they should be hitting that others we might be in a different place so again we're an ecosystem and, and there's no sort of right or wrong answer um but I, I would like everyone to think more strategically about where their energy and their their efforts should go. Yeah, and I want to I want to talk about that aspect of it too, like the prioritization of what you're focusing on. But I, I feel like we've jumped ahead a little too quickly in that I don't really know enough about Sammy Grover. So back up and tell me about where your passion for fighting climate change came from. How did you come to this work? Oh yeah. Okay. Gosh, that's a, that's a super, that's a good question. It starts early enough that, and I, early enough, and I'm old enough that um, I'm going to have a hard time giving you a really specific answer. <laughs> I can tell you, I've always been concerned about the environment since sort of preteen years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I became involved in activism in my teen years, really, um, attending protests. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, as my friends were bunking off school to go and raid their parents' liquor cabinets, I was bunking off school to go and volunteer for Cleveland and North Somerset Friends of the Earth. Um, so <laughs> nice. So I was like, I was like that nerdy rebel. Okay, you know? all um, right, yeah, yeah. But but um, so so I've been involved in it for years um, through student years. Got in, got very involved from that activism side was sort of protest. There was a big uh, No More Roads movement in in the UK that I was uh, sort of on the peripheries of um, that this would be mid nineties. But then through that kind of got, what I found was that I needed to find ways to to start sort of setting my own life in the right direction too. So I found a lot of joy in kind of learning to grow my own food. I was a vegetarian for a long time, worked at a vegetarian restaurant. I sort of found myself in this community of people that were trying to do that sort of, tread a little lightly on the earth so i've sort of straddled both sides of the activism and the 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 um the the personal kind of lifestyle efforts um but also always been as i think everybody is sort of imperfect in those efforts right i've also 
flown to places when I didn't need to fly. I've driven more than I should. I, I'm mm. no longer fully vegetarian. Fully vegetarian. If you're not fully vegetarian, you're just not a vegetarian. <laughs> um, I don't eat a lot of meat. Let's put it that way. Um, great, great. But yeah, so I've just been involved in, in that. And then, and then through sort of professional career, I'm a writer is my skill, writer, communicator. Um, so I had to find a place where I could apply environmental principles in a space that uh, early on, it was hard to think about sort of environmentalism. If I'm thinking back to the 90s and early 2000s, you think about you want to work in the environment, you have to do X, Y, or Z, right? You have to be an academic, you have to be a scientist, you have to be a engineer, a solo thing or whatever. Um, so it took me a while to find that place where like, oh, you can do words and and make a difference too. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the the, the early journey at least. Yeah. And then just been very involved in green business, B Corp movement, nonprofits, helping them with branding and communications and um, and kind of trying to get that message across of, of there are different ways of doing things. And, and often yeah. those different ways are not necessarily easier, but they're often better. Well, I'll tell you, Sammy, I'm in a, a very similar places you I, I that's the most difficult question I have to answer is how you got into this work because I've always felt like it's a part of me uh, and it, I was 15 years old in 1989 when I decided to never get a driver's license and never use cars, uh, so like there's no there's no genesis point, but certainly the the cross country bike trip I did with my father from our front door in D.C. to Seattle really sort of solidified at least that piece. But it, there's so much to the sustainability journey that you don't even know about at 15, yeah, yeah. right? Right? Uh, I certainly was not. My eyes had not been opened to the whole social and economic sides of sustainability and how important social justice is for uh, moving us forward together and for tackling climate change, right? We tend to put these things in different boxes, but that's why we're failing. <laughs> so right. yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about that too, about um, the connection with social justice and, and why you think we can get distracted by personal behaviors about climate change uh, from some of these truly important things? Yeah, for sure. So, so um I think one of the one of the fallacies, and I, I've been subject to this fallacy for years, was this idea that the environmental movement was white, mm. right? And it's not. It's not white at all. It's in fact many of the leaders have and always have been indigenous folks, black folks, and and folks who actually know what it's like to resist a system that doesn't respect you or treat you fairly, right? Right. Um, we as white folks uh, have a lot to learn. We, me, meaning you and. I, I assume, actually, I, I don't know how you... Had, yes, I, yes, definitely white. White. So, um, <laughs> But we have a lot to learn from resistance movements that have been around for years. And I, um, there's a, a writer I speak to in the book called Mary Hegler. Um, she's a friend, a fellow board member at Dogwood Alliance. Um, she, she talks a lot about how when she started getting involved in climate and environment, she sort of felt she was surrounded by people who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I think that's really fair, right? Because I think folks who have traditionally been treated with a lot of privilege and respect within a system mm. have an outsized sense of their own agency yeah right so we put ourselves at the center of the story right uh you know if i think about like how do i solve uh climate change you know oh well the obvious place to start is i stop doing x y and z uh -huh. because i'm always at the center of the story and the fact is when none of us are at the center of the story what's at the center of the story is the systems that that make make the world the way it is and the same is true of, of racism, right? I think there was a fantastic, I'm very, very glad there was a big awakening to uh, yeah. racial injustice last year, deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of that. But 
I think there was a tendency among the our main our sort of individualistic culture that the place to go from this is bad is to go to kind of reading white fragility and learning how to be less racist myself. Um, and there's some value in those efforts, right? Because we all have racism within us. We all have prejudice within us. We all right. have learned behaviors within us, but we can't fix it just by being less racist, right? We have to dive into the structures that make the world the way it is. We have to, we have to take on powerful forces that have a vested interest in keeping it the way it is. Um, and we have to learn to sh shut up and listen sometimes. <laughs> and that's that's not always easy. To, that's not always easy to do if you've grown up in a place that kind of senses your story. Perfect. You know? Yeah. No, that's perfect. So there's something, not only something racist in all of us, but something unsustainable in all of us. And we can't fix these problems just by working on our own personal behavior, though. Th that's we must. We must also work on right. our own personal behavior. And and I think I tried to distinguish between what makes you, gives you sort of a certain outsized moral responsibility to do something about it. And I think all of us who live in the West and with a comfortable Western lifestyle yeah. do have outsized carbon footprints, right? We right. can't forget that I think it's the top 10% of the world's population creates 50% of the world's emissions, something something like that, and the top 1% is even more. And probably the vast majority of people listening to this show are within the top 10% of wealth and even the higher end of that. Yeah. Like it's a, it's, it's a fairly low number by US standards that you have to earn to be in the top percent of global wealth. Um, so we have a responsibility to do something about our outsized contribution to carbon emissions, but it doesn't necessarily follow that the most effective place to do that is by going all in on reducing your own emissions, right? I'm speaking today. Uh, if you follow with, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do. And I'm so Sorry. excited to continue this conversation. But I just have to quickly remind listeners that I'm speaking sure. today with Sammy Grover. He's a, a an author and his brand new book, his first book is out. It's called We're All Climate Hypocrites Now, How Embracing Our Limitations Can Unlock the Power of, of a Movement, released from New Society Publishers just this week. You can find it at newsociety.com or support your favorite local bookseller uh, and check it out. It's a very accessible book, my friends. This is a, a wonderful read for anybody uh, who's anywhere on this journey towards sustainability. So I highly, highly recommend it. Um, one of the things you talk a lot about in the book is how important it is to focus. I mean, we already talked about the issue of shame, right? Focus less on the shame and more on the joy around doing this work and how life affirming and joyful it is to try and adopt some of these behaviors, right? Uh, you want to tell some stories from your own life about why, why you think that's important? Yeah. So I, I think one, one of the things that I... I think, and this is more intuitive than I don't have sort of research to back this up, but it feels to me like a lot of people don't necessarily want to engage with the topic of climate change because one, it's scary and depressing. Yeah. And two, because you have, because you sort of feel like you have to start looking at your lifestyle and, it, and it's going to be hard to change everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And it, and it is like, if you look at it and go like, oh my gosh, I live in North Carolina, this car centric kind of space um, where it's really hard to ride a bike. Um, and suddenly I'm going to have to give up my car and I'm going to, you know, all of this stuff, that's really exhausting, right? So, but I think the first place to start is just understanding that if you get involved in the climate movement at any level, one, you'll meet some of the coolest people you'll ever meet. Like everyone I meet who's in the climate world is, is just funny, fun, uh, well, almost everyone, but there's sort of a, a, a space of people who are um, engaged and interesting and, and have these really fantastic perspectives. So one, that, that's the one thing I say, it's just like the community you find in, in, 
finding people who are engaging with this in an open way without being judgmental and without uh, none of us are perfect. So I'm trying to create this space where we can all say, okay, let's just all start talking about it, figuring out what we can do. And then the other part is just doing things sort of slightly differently is there is joy in that, mm. right? And it, it it's going to depend. And I think you need to lean into where you find the joy. Yeah. Right? So if you happen to be, if you happen to be living, like I said, in a space where it's hard not to drive, um, or perhaps life-threatening not to drive. There, you know, our cities are very, very dangerous for pedestrians and cyclists. I think it's morally wrong of the climate movement to say that you must ride a bike and you must give up your car, right? But equally, we can celebrate those who do that as heroes, right? And actually quite brave heroes. So there's a chapter in the book where I talk about the one time I rode my bike to work. Yeah, I love that um, section. <laughs> yeah, right. On an e-bike. And it was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was, it was an e-bike. I'm... Yeah, I'm profoundly lazy as well as and it's a 14 mile commute <laughs> yeah. that's that's a hefty one <laughs> yes it was a 14 mile commute my wife said as i was leaving you know she said you are definitely going to die and <laughs> and like i sort of laughed and then i got halfway in and i was like oh this isn't a she joke might have been right. right this is actually deadly this is deadly serious and and you know joking aside like if you look at if you follow bike advocates on twitter it's actually depressing how often one of them will say we, you know we lost another one yeah sideswiped yeah. by a car or hit you know so, so we have to temper the sort of the moral discussion around like car driving and uh, whatever else with the, the moral discussion around like some people do not feel safe on a bicycle right now and for very, very good reason. So we need to find the space where we can build common ground with those who do ride their bikes and also those who don't but would like to and those who maybe see opportunities at City Hall to make their cities more, more sustainable. Um, and this is happening. And it has happened, right? If you look at Amsterdam, um, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's an incredible cycle. Yes. Just, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of cyclists just pouring out of Central Station every day. They've got, they've got three, four story bike parking, you know. 40% it's, it's of trips, I think, are on bicycle. And, I, yeah. I think so, yes. And it, it's, I, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but it's certainly like, you know, it feels like this. It's much faster to ride a bike than to drive a car in yeah. Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't always the case, right? In the in the seventies and eighties, bike bike use was plummeting, car use was was rising, and that was because the powerful and the rich had cars. Yep. Um, and there was a orchestrated movement to switch back, yeah. right? And that involved cyclists, but it also involved people who weren't cyclists. It involved historic preservationists. It involved just ordinary families, some of them car owners. But we have to learn how to build these movements that sort of bring people together with a shared vision and an idea of where we could get to. Uh, that's kind of where I think the joy lies. Uh, and where we where we often lose that joy is when we sort of get in our bubbles and say like, I got to do everything, right? <laughs> it's, it's all me and humans are bad, and which is also bullshit. You know, there's there's a certain misanthropy in the yes. climate um, yes. space, that yes, yes, in, yes. in parts of the climate space that is just exhausting. It's, yeah. it's exhausting and it's not true. People talk about human-induced climate change. It's not human-induced climate change. It's fossil fuel-induced climate change. Great, right? great it's, point. It's industry-induced climate change. And we don't have to be that way. I want to I want to dive into that, but 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 before we go there, I, uh, as a lifelong cyclist, I just want to talk a little bit more about that piece of it, um, because certainly, and when I think about my life and the things I've adopted that bring me joy, uh, cycling is absolutely one of them. Even in a car addicted city like Louisville, which is which is not like a Madison, Wisconsin, it's not like 
on Amsterdam. It's not ideal for cyclists, but it's still quite doable, and I still get quite a bit of joy out of it, uh, even though uh, there are moments that feel a little unsafe, and I've got to get used to that uh, and overcome that and feel like the superhero, like you mentioned, uh, right. for doing so. Um, but I also have, I get in cars so rarely that I do feel quite a bit of anxiety every time I do, uh, or even in even in a bus. Like I was recently uh, going on a, in a in a private uh, bus to with a group of U of L students, uh, and um, like the first thing I'm thinking about is, oh my God, does this thing have seatbelts? Because <laughs> what happens if we get in a car wreck? And of course, the seatbelts were like you know tucked away and hidden. I couldn't even use them. So like for me, for someone who doesn't get in a car frequently, um, I do not have joy about vehicles. Uh, they they give me anxiety. So we can flip the script uh, and the science. Yeah, sure. the, all the data certainly suggests that it's more dangerous to drive than it is to ride a bicycle. But the perception is always that that is a very vulnerable space. Uh, when Whenever I'm leaving an event and someone sees me getting my bike, they're always saying, oh, be careful out there. And the thought in my right. mind is, no, you be careful. You're the one getting in a loaded weapon, right? Yeah. <laughs> in that car, you're the one who's going to hurt people, not me. <laughs> well, so, that, yeah, that's very that's very fair. And I think that's 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 sort of the, as you say, it is the flip side of that argument, right? And 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 the other thing about riding a bike, though, is just that sheer joy, right? Like, oh, I don't yeah. think I ever feel joy driving a car. Right, right. My car is fine, right? It's an electric car. It's a little blue <laughs> Nissan Leaf. It's ugly as hell, but it, it works. Works, right it gets right, me where right, i need to right, go right right but but there you feel like a kid on a bike absolutely right? you feel free on a bike and it, it this is one of those things that is very strange in america where the the symbol of freedom is kind of the ford f-150 isn't right? it crazy um, and there 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 are different kinds of freedom right there's a there's a freedom to get on a bike and not feel terrified for your life right there's a freedom <laughs> to you know not have to find a parking space yeah. you know all of these things that they're, they're you know, Amsterdam is one of the freest cities I've been in, right? And part of that is that sense of like the bicycle makes you feel free. And it's also because they're like, you know, they follow zero road rules on their bicycles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I've been cycling in Vietnam. That's what it's like in Saigon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're yeah. just in a river of two wheeled vehicles, everybody doing their own thing. But it works. Yeah. And, and, and the worst thing that happens is a scraped knee. Exactly. You know, or, exactly. You know, oh, yeah. And the other piece of, of cycling or car free living, whatever, however you do it, is financial freedom too. Like we don't recognize the financial burden of this expectation that everybody's got to own a car, insure a car, park a car, maintain a car. AAA says we're spending right. like $10,000 a year, the average car owner, on all of those additional expenses. And who wouldn't love a $10,000 raise, right? Um, but the point in your book is not that these things are, are, are good and, and joyful. Of course they are. The, the point is that the systems that we're all swimming in make it so hard for us to do these things. And you, and you have a whole section called or chapter on swimming upstream, right? And that's what, that's why we need to pay attention to other things than personal behavior because it shouldn't be this hard, right? Right. Yes. So, and, and, and the point is that change happens through these, like these tipping points. Right. And part of it will be like, if we can create enough of that individual behavior change in specific places, certain things change, right? Like the the flight shame movement in Sweden, um, I think it was sort of a four, five, six percent drop in air travel wow. um, pre-pandemic uh, that then resulted in suddenly there was new sleeper trains happening, right? And there was new, and, and I doubt that five, six percent was everybody 
giving up you know all it was it was literally five or six percent of the flying population suddenly stopped flying i suspect some were like well i took one holiday instead of two or right, i right, right. switched from business class to you know to, to coach all of those things make a difference and i would like us to talk about our individual actions less as individual actions and more as acts of mass mobilization um and i think this again this may be another thing that uh, mary Heg hegler uh, uh, the podcaster i referenced earlier said uh is that the most important thing you can do as an individual is to stop thinking about yourself so much as an individual and i love that and i'm really jealous and i wish i had written that i, I wish i'd written that because i think it's fantastic right that's that's literally it and if you start thinking about whatever it is you're doing veganism or reducing your meat intake or reducing your flying or stopping your flying or not driving like you are you know if you start thinking about that as an act of mass mobilization you start thinking less about you know where you're falling short more about where can i make the connections with someone else to make sure that the change i am making creates a shift that then makes it easier for everybody else yeah um, and it's sort of this it's just this shift in perspective and it's much more empowering mm. uh, than feeling like i have to okay so because th the flip side is if we focus on my individual carbon footprint i have to give up driving then i have to give up me then i have to crawl around on my hands and knees and call all the baseboards and then i have to you know sort of go through the trash can and pull out every single piece of non-recyclable stuff some people will do that but that's a really hard pill for the majority of people to swallow when they're trying to get their kids to school and pay the bills and you know all of these things so no that's that's right on i'm speaking today with the sammy grover he is the author of a brand new book out this week called we're all climate hypocrites now how embracing our limitations can unlock the power of a movement just released from new society publishers you can find it at newsociety.com or at your favorite local bookseller we've got a bunch of them in town you might want to consider buying this book from uh, it's a very accessible book i really enjoyed reading it sammy um I, I, before we dive into the the structural change that needs to happen. I want to end with that for sure. Um, your your title says we're all climate hypocrites now. Were we not climate hypocrites before? What happened? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Well, I, I think what I would answer to that is that there was a time when we could have watched ourselves do this sort of gradual lowering of our carbon emissions uh, okay. so i don't know if someone was you know what i mean like i don't know if someone was a climate hypocrite in uh you know 1964 uh, okay. or 1967 when they got in their car what we're seeing now is we're getting to a point where like we need Radical massive systems action. change yeah 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 we know that uh, and by we, I should also be very careful about how I use we, right? We is very specifically the, the target audience for this book, which is the majority of us that live within that, that sort of top 10% of global wealth, right? We have no choice but to exist within a system that we are trying to change, right? And that means we have to find our way of accepting that we're part of the problem as we try and find our way to being part of the solution. Um, and the, the, other, the other thinking behind the title seeing as you asked, um, is I don't know if I'm calling us climate hypocrites, right? Like there's two options for us. <laughs> the, the term hypocrisy is used as a cudgel, right? By opponents of change. Right. Like if you turn around and say like, we have to stop using fossil fuels, they'll say, oh, oh, well, what's your laptop made of? Yeah, you yeah, know, what's yeah. that microphone made yep. of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, 
so part of it is sort of reclaiming the term and just saying, sure, I'm a hypocrite. Who cares? Let's move on with that conversation. Yes, right? yes, yes. And the other is to maybe just say hypocrisy doesn't exist within that space, right? I'm a hypocrite. I'm not necessarily demanding that you reduce your carbon footprint to zero and you shouldn't demand that I am. What I am demanding is that we should create a system that makes it possible for me to reduce my carbon footprint yeah. to zero. Yeah. So it's, it's the same as if I'm a, you know, everyone was ragging on AOC the other day because she wore a, um, tax the rich dress yeah. to the Met Gala. Um, and it, she, she was at a fancy gala. Presumably most people there were rich and everyone applauded her. There is nothing hypocritical about a rich person saying tax the rich. That a rich person is exactly who should be saying tax the rich, right? And I don't think, <laughs> I doubt AOC is particularly rich, but but it frustrates me that these these sort of really cheap arguments of hypocrisy are used to distract us from from um, much more important topics, yeah, right? And yeah. there, there are billionaires out there who are saying, please tax me more, because a billionaire by themselves, even if they gave all their wealth away, they cannot fix inequality, yeah. right? You know, they, they, maybe Jeff Bezos could actually, but but most 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 of them cannot make a meaningful impact, even as a billionaire. Um, they can they can they can help with philanthropy, but but philanthropy is often used as an excuse oh, not sure. to create structural tax systems mm-hmm. that actually, you know, redistribute wealth. <laughs> dare I say. Oh, we're getting towards some of those structural issues. That's good. I would definitely, yeah. again, want to end with that. Uh, but but one last thing about the personal a- actions. I, I, I read in your book this, I think it's a really important point, so I want us to highlight it again. The, the You say that what's important is not what we do, but why we do it, right? Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit more about the why? Why why should I take this action on climate? Uh, I'm just a drop in the bucket. It's not going to make a difference. But there are reasons to take personal action, right? There are. And again, that's sort of, sort of the why I think is it comes back to this idea of playing it through, right? So the reason I focus on X, Y, or Z is because I think this is where I have an opportunity to shift yeah. the system, yeah. right? So it's less about me getting my own carbon footprint to zero and more about like, okay, so I'm I'm in a job that involves a lot of flying, say. I, I'm not right now, but if I was, uh, one of the places where it might make sense for me to start is to advocate for a change in policy at work that would right. allow me to fly less and also allow all of my colleagues to fly less. So yeah. a lot of the academics I know are getting involved in sort of no-fly movements or trying to get uh, virtual appearances at conferences to be more of a thing, which happily the pandemic has shown is perfectly possible. Um, and um, I spoke to Z- Zakia M- McKenzie in the UK. She's an academic and nature writer. And she sort of talks about this idea that disabled folks have been asking for this for years, mm. right? Disabled academics and folks with mobility issues have been asking, begging for virtual conferencing to be a thing and to really sort of lift up folks who don't want to or can't travel and they were ignored right because we live in a society that doesn't treat disabled folks as equals Um, and now that we've all seen that it's possible where can we hold on to those spaces that make it possible to change change um for for individuals to, to make those changes so so it's like finding your specific superpowers how a friend put it to me when i was describing the book to them it's like because we all have these superpowers that that mean that the thing I do will have an outsized impact, yeah. right? So pick that one thing, focus there. Yeah. And then rather than then trying to move on to something else entirely, go deeper with that uh-huh. and go wider with that and make connections with that. And then, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing all the other stuff for extra points, yeah. right? Sure, go be a vegan as well. No. But but 
if if that's your superpower, put your put the majority of your efforts there. Well, and certainly one of the reasons to at least try some of these more sustainable behaviors is because of what you're going to learn in the process of doing it. So if you're an administrator at a university and you have never ridden your bike or taken the bus to get to campus, you have no idea what that's like, right? And so why would you even think to make any changes to make that easier, better, cheaper, more convenient, whatever? You're just going to keep doing what you always do, which is drive to campus and figure out how to make that cheap and convenient, right? And so uh, the actual act of doing it is an act of learning and figuring out how unsustainable the structures are. And then you get then you get fired up to actually try and change those. Uh, and so let's end by talking about some of the structural challenges to addressing climate change. Uh, you've already hinted at, well, the, you've pointed a finger at the fossil fuel industry. Uh, what other structural challenges are there to really addressing this that we should be focusing on, perhaps even as we're doing some of these personal behaviors? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so, so just to just to, I, I would love to re-emphasize the point you just made because I, I spoke to Peter Kalmus, who's a um, NASA scientist who's written a terrific book on how he reduced his carbon footprint some ninety percent, right? And I think he gets very frustrated by people minimizing individual action. He's he's always said like individual action is not the end goal. It's this space to one create systemic change and two, it is a space to um, to to spot where. You know where you've hit that tension where is it hardest that's where we need to make the changes so it's this it is this learning opportunity so i just wanted to that yeah. that, that is a, a not insignificant point yeah um but but the the, the structural changes i i talk about are one one kind of uh absolutely fossil fuels way too cheap right like that we have to make fossil fuels exceedingly expensive and or eventually illegal right, right? there are reasons we don't allow lead paint anymore Right? Yeah. There, there are reasons we don't allow asbestos in buildings anymore. There is nothing wrong with banning dangerous, harmful products. And it's not an impingement on your freedom to uh, try and keep a livable climate. Um, so, so one, I think we need to increasingly move towards you know, legal and policy level interventions that make fossil fuels exceedingly hard and harder to use. Right? So, so banning gas cars. Right? In, that's Over interesting. There. So y you would advocate for a ban rather than what a lot of colleagues in the climate action movement are, are arguing for, which is a price on carbon and let the market sort it out. You, you think that's not enough. I will couch anything I say with the fact that I am not a policy expert. Um, so what? I, so before I answer, let me just say, like, like check with the Sierra Club, or, or check with whoever about where our best next step is. But eventually, we have to get to a point where there's a reason we're saying keep it in the ground, right? We have to get to a point where we That's will right. no longer be burning. Like right. we have no choice but to stop emitting carbon, um, and we are starting to see bans on certain products. Right. So so there is talk in Europe, several several European nations are talking about banning gas powered cars by X date. Right. And cities, cities are looking at I think I think California may be looking at that. Right. But I, I think we have to move to a place where we get there. I don't know if that's something that's feasible now. Right. We as you know, I, I using fossil fuels now to make this call. Right. Um, we can't get from zero to 100 Overnight, yeah. overnight, yeah. but we also have to move as fast as we possibly can, and we have to be careful about false solutions. So, like we, uh, you probably know, Exxon has been pushing for a, a tax on carbon, and coincidentally, they've been pushing for it at a at a rate that would be one that there's 
tape that's been released of Exxon lobbyists saying, well, the reason we're pushing for it is we know it'll never happen, but it makes us look good. Um, and two, they're pushing for a tax on carbon at a price that wouldn't really meaningfully move the needle. Meanwhile, it moves, it shifts attention away from other policies like banning gas-powered cars, for example, or mandating walkable neighborhoods or, you know, all of these other things that would make a bigger difference. So, so I, I, I don't, I'm not the right person to answer the specifics of which policy when, but I think we need to think, think be thinking in terms of the only correct action is as fast as possible, as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. You know? We are in an emergency. Yeah, we're in an emergency, but we're on a really big ship that we need to turn around and ships don't turn around quickly. Uh, and, yes. and we all play a role in the momentum of that shift. Uh, but there are some, you know, structural things about how this ship was built, right? That <laughs> we cannot ignore yeah. in this process of change and slowing. Uh, there's going to be a slowdown of the ship before it turns. I, that's how I think about it, right? Uh, and, and so uh, I, I work with a lot of young people who deal with a lot of climate anxiety, you know, college level students, and and to them the 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 change is not fast enough. They they demand immediate change, and I love that. I, I'm I'm buoyed by that every time I hear it. Um, but I was just speaking with one the other day is about you know as you age, you're gonna see time compress, and like when you're 20, a year seems like a long time. When you're 40, <laughs> a year goes by like nothing. So that has helped me come to a place where I kind of accept the slow pace of change, but. I'll, we can't ignore the fact that the global climate crisis has become so extreme. We've waited so long that we do need some radical shifts. And I think you talked in the book, too, about how the pandemic taught us some lessons about how quickly things can actually change, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think there's absolutely things can change, you know, very, very fast. You look at the Second World War or the pandemic or whatever. And if you look at my own experience, right, I, I'd be careful what lessons to draw from this, right? In 2006, okay. I left England and offshore wind was not a thing, right? Yeah. And coal was fairly, I don't know what the exact percentage of what coal was on the grid, but it was fairly, fairly high. And we'd look to Denmark and say, look at them, they're leaders in renewables, right? Now, you know, a little over a decade, well, all right, decade and a half later, but offshore, you know, there's there's gigawatts and gigawatts of offshore wind, and there's I think there's only one coal plant left operating in the UK. Wow. Now the UK isn't anywhere near where it needs to be, but UK carbon emissions have dropped to Victorian era levels. Wow. Right. So progress has been made, and it has been made in what what we old folks think is a pretty rap rapid um, period of time. Um, so we we can see that shift and the other thing is shift is uh, shifts aren't linear right like if you look at the news yesterday china said that they were going to stop um stop uh, uh financing coal um overseas coal uh construction um that that is going to pretty much put an end to a lot of coal that was going to be built so you can see how quickly you know 10 years ago we were looking at the coal industry was on an upwards trajectory oh, yeah. people were predicting india and china was going to be you know coal 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 now that has shifted. Now we've got to move our attention to gas and to, to oil. Right. But but change can happen fast. I don't want to be sort of I don't I don't really believe in optimism or pessimism anymore. Mm -hmm. I, believe, I believe in determination because I don't think any of us know how it's going to turn out. Um, and the only right way to go at this is like, here's the problem. We got to keep working at it. Like, I'm going to choose to keep working at it for as long as I can, as hard as I can. But none of us are going to get to a point where it's solved. I don't think there's a world in which I go to my deathbed and 
you know, the problem is solved. Even if we're at zero <laughs> carbon emissions by then, we're still living with the consequences yeah. and we're still trying to fix uh, the issues. And we're all trying to fix all those other things that were broken long before the climate crisis even yeah. even reared its ugly head. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, so, uh, but I do think change is possible. No, uh, that's a that's a very good note to be wrapping up on. And unfortunately, we do have to wrap up, Sam. I would love to talk to you all day. This is a really rich topic. But I want to highlight the last section of your book, which is on what next? Resources, organizations, and actions. You end the book with some very specific things that people can become aware of and get involved in. Do you want to highlight just a few of those organizations or, or resources for, to share with people? Sure. Yeah. So, so, so one of the first things I say is before you sort of start looking at like your, your negative carbon footprint and sort of diving down that behavior change rabbit hole, I think first, I always said, I mentioned this earlier is find your superpower, right? Yeah. Like figure out where you, you exist within this space. Uh, and you might be, you know, if you're a member of a faith community, right? Like figure, like get involved there. If you are uh, on the school board, get involved there. Um, if you are, um, you know, if you if you if you're working in industry, get involved there, and then, and then reach out to groups that are working on that, right? So, so some of the folks I, I don't remember the specifics of who I, I named in the book, but um, you know, the Sunrise Movement has been really interesting to me how they they've, they've uh, come about 350.org. If Dogwood Alliance, I'm on the board, so full disclosure on that one. But they do some terrific work protecting forests here in the in the southeast uh, United States um, and and promoting sort of environmental and racial justice through 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 a lens of forests and forest protection so so finding those organizations that can help you start your journey is i think super important and probably mm -hmm. the right place to start mm -hmm. um and then i do think I, I i don't reject the idea of carbon footprints i think it's valuable to learn where the impact is coming from and i think you'll learn a lot about like you said the structural reasons for it right um, so that I think it's a helpful exercise, but just start first with where your superpowers lie and where is your place of community that works on the thing that you care about, because that's what's going to sustain you. Um, and then you need to start thinking about yourself as part of a, a, an ecosystem of actors that are trying to move this forward rather than, you know, an individual that has the, the weight of the world on their shoulders. All right. Climate hypocrites unite. <laughs> First thing you need to do is give a read to Sammy Grover's new book, We're All Climate Hypocrites Now, How Embracing Our Limitations Can Unlock the Power of a Movement, just released on September 21st by New Society Publishers. Wow, this has been such a treat, Sammy. Uh, th I, I encourage you to keep writing. This is really helpful and useful stuff. Uh, and I would love to get you, you back on the program someday to talk about your next book. So uh, thanks for joining us today this has been great yeah this was really fun thank you all right stay tuned everybody coming up in just a second your community action calendar with all kinds of specific ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability now stay tuned my friends Down by the waterside, we take our time. Down by the waterside, got no worries and no worries. Down by the waterside, good Lord. Gonna set them free 
child, she's an easy giver, yeah And we're diving in the lake Good Lord, she's never too late, oh yeah And we're swimming in the sea, I said And with the sweet sounds of Apple Latin behind me now, many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their great music on the local broadcast we have here on Forward Radio. You can find out more about them at AppleLatin.com and more about us at ForwardRadio.org. My name is Justin Mogg, and we are back here on Sustainability Now with the Community Action Calendar, your chance to get active for sustainability this week. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, my friends. And take note, coming up on Tuesday, the 28th at noon, it's beginnings, race and racism in the U.S. with Reverend Dr. Shannon Crago Snell, a virtual workshop for women. In this workshop, we'll discuss how racism got started in the U.S. and how it continues in many of our societal structures. We will engage different understandings of race and racism, as well as covering important elements of U.S. history that are often not taught in our schools. Finally, we'll talk about spirituality and ethics in response to racism today. This workshop is free thanks to a grant funding from the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth and PCUSA Racial and Equity and Women's Intercultural Ministries, which also supports an October 5th workshop with Reverend Shania Leonard entitled Racism, White Supremacy, Culture, and Cultural Humility. You can learn more and register for both of those workshops at spiritofsophia.org, spiritofsophia.org, and it's Tuesday the 28th from noon to 2 p.m. Now, on Wednesday the 29th at 6.30 p.m. at the Highland Shelby Park Library in Mid-City Mall, there'll be a free screening of the film The Wanted 18. Jewish Voice for Peace of Kentucky presents this film and discussion through a clever mix of stop-motion animation and interviews. The Wanted 18 recreates an astonishing true story, the Israeli Army's pursuit of 18 cows, whose independent milk production on a Palestinian collective farm was declared a threat to the national security of the state of Israel. The movie is 75 minutes in duration, after which Forward Radio's own Hart Hagen will lead a discussion it's Wednesday the 29th at 6.30 p.m. at the Highland Shelby Park Library in Mid-City Mall. Now, also on Wednesday the 29th at a different library at 6.30 down at the main library right next to us here at Ford Radio. They're at 301 York Street. It'll be Race and Place, Understanding Race in Louisville, in Kentucky, and in the U.S. with U of L's Dr. Kalasia uh, OJ, when was the last time your race played a role in your interactions with your colleagues, neighbors, and people you meet here in Louisville? In this talk, Dr. Kalasia OJ, assistant professor in UofL's Department of Pan-African Studies, will give a history, definition, and description of critical race theory and discuss race relations on the local and national levels. To register for this free fast class, go to lfpl.org and just coming out Wednesday the 29th at 6.30 p.m. at the main library, 301 York Street. More information at lfpl.org. 
Now, Wednesday evening, the 29th, is also the 2021 Brightside Bash from 6 to 9 p.m. at the beautiful Waterfront Botanical Gardens. It's a fundraiser for Brightside. Tickets are on sale now. This fundraiser event will feature food from Mayan Cafe with a 50-50 raffle and some truly incredible Wheel of Chance items up for grabs. Each item in the Wheel of Chance selections will only have 20 chances sold, so the odds of winning are very good, with items ranging from getaways to golf outings, there's something for everyone, including a week-long visit to Lakeside Cabin in Nolan Lake, Kentucky, uh, Cincinnati Reds home game, a bourbon basket, tickets to Lou City or Louisville Racing soccer game with a tailgating package. You can purchase tickets for the Wheel of Chance items now, and drawings will be held at the live event, which is Wednesday, September 29th at 6 p.m. at Waterfront Botanical Gardens. You do not have to be present to win, however. You can get all the information and purchase tickets at eventbrite.com. Just search for Brightside Bash or find the link at facebook.com slash Brightside Louisville. Now, coming up on Thursday, September 30th at 6 p.m., it's the Kentucky Solar Advocacy Network presentation of Energy Democracy and Utility Regulation, key players in our energy system and how we can steer them towards change. There's actually two options to join this presentation. You can either do it Thursday the 30th at 6 p.m. or Friday, October 1st at noon. For the past 10 and a half years or 10 plus years, it's been impossible to pass good energy legislation in Kentucky due to obstructionist leaders in our energy and environment committees. So what are we to do if we want to promote renewable energy and support the just transition? Enter the Public Service Commission. The PSC makes important decisions every day about our energy and water systems, everything from regulating monopoly utilities and setting rates to overseeing planning for the future. We are in a historic moment where all three commissioners have been appointed by Governor Bashir, and we have the opportunity to push this commission to do what's best for Kentuckians and the climate. Learn more about how the PSC works, our vision for energy democracy in Kentucky, and how you can play a role in ensuring the Public Service Commission is a voice for the public. Register to attend at eventbrite.com, and you can find the link at facebook.com slash solar Kentucky. Again, you can join this presentation either Thursday the 30th at 6 p.m or Friday the 1st at noon. Find the link at facebook.com slash solar Kentucky. Also on Thursday the 30th at 7 p.m., the Kentucky Conservation Committee is hosting the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. You can either join virtually or live at the Lyric out in Lexington. The Kentucky Conservation Committee is excited to bring the 7th Annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival to you. Choose to view these amazing films on demand in the safety of your home or at the historic Lyric Theater in Lexington for fully vaccinated attendees only. This is your opportunity to see the nation's largest environmental film festival and the virtual ticket option allows you to watch these amazing films safely at home anytime between September 30th and October 5th. Live tickets also include access to an additional five days of streaming to view these films at home. Films this year feature local Kentucky activism as well as films on local farming, climbing, biking, whitewater, climate action, and more. There's also a raffle. Every ticket enters you for a chance to win prizes such as outdoor 
for adventure passes from Southeast Mountain Guides, Gorge Underground, Gorge Zipline, the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, and other great items, and an auction as well. The Kentucky Conservation Foundation will be hosting a silent auction during this event, which is a fundraiser in support of the Kentucky Conservation Committee. Learn more and get your tickets at kyconservation.org for the Thursday, September 30th, 7 p.m. Wild and Scenic Film Festival, uh, either virtually or live at the Lyric in Lexington. Go to kyconservation.org. I also want to remind you that this coming Saturday is one of the alternate Saturdays on which you can enjoy the new Shively Farmers and Artisans Market running every other Saturday through the end of October from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Shively City Hall and Library. They're at 3920 Dixie Highway. You can get more information on Instagram or or Facebook. Just look for Shively Farmers Market KY. And again, the upcoming market dates are October 2nd, 16th, and 30th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Shively City Hall. Also on Saturday, October 2nd, from 1 to 5, it's a Creation Care Fair out at Epiphany Catholic Church, 914 Old Herod's Creek Road. This event is free and everyone is welcome. As Pope Francis said in 2015, our common home is being pillaged, laid waste, and harmed with impunity. Cowardice in defending it is a grave sin. Come to this family-friendly fun event on Saturday, October 2nd. Bring your bike for a free tune-up. Learn about solar power for your your home, food choices, and your carbon footprint, and the plastics problem. Kids' activities include a nature scavenger hunt and eco-art making. Gather tips on caring for creation in your daily life. You can contact Polly Duncan Cullum at 502-780-0394 for any more information you might need. But just come on out this Saturday, October 2nd, 1 to 5 p.m. at Epiphany Catholic Church, 914 Old Harrods Creek Road. And the last thing I want to let you know, if you're interested in getting into beekeeping, uh, the next field day of the Kentuckiana Beekeepers Association, actually it's their October educational session. It's going to be held indoors this time, October 3rd, Sunday, 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Louisville Nature Center. We'll meet at the Louisville Nature Center where Dorothy Morgan of the Kentucky Queen Breeders Association will talk about breeding queens. Dorothy is a master at breeding queens, so don't miss out on this excellent an opportunity to learn from the best. And you can learn more about the uh, Sunday, October 3rd, 6 p.m. event at the Nature Center at kyanabees.com. K-Y-A-N-A-B-E-E-S.com. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Ah, la ilusión.